Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Hi everyone, welcome back to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. This is a show about sex, relationships, and mental health. And I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. I'm a psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. And today we're gonna to be talking about the impact of childhood sexual abuse on the parents of the children who are victimized. So content note, if this is triggering for you, Feel free to come back to this episode another time when you're feeling ready to, to take in some of this information. Um, to have this conversation, I've invited one of the clinical associates at Modern Intimacy to come and chat with, with me about it. Um, Imani Reynolds is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. She earned her master's degree in marriage and family in child counseling with a specialization in marriage and family therapy from California State University in Sacramento. Amani's currently a doctoral student in uh, getting her PhD in human sexuality with research focused on sexual desire, sexual intimacy, and sexual trauma. As a board certified sexologist, Imani's goal is to help her clients achieve a healthy and satisfying sex life, whether on their own or in a relationship. And understanding how difficult it can be to talk about sex, Imani values providing space that clients can talk and find support for a wide array of sexual concerns without judgment. Imani wholeheartedly believes that sex is an essential aspect of the human experience that can be overlooked in taking care of our well-being. So today we're talking again about the impact of learning about a child's sexual abuse on the lives and sex lives of the parents of that child. It's a really traumatic event for any child who's been sexually victimized. And today we're going to take a look at the impact it can have on that child's parents as well. So welcome, Amani. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank me on. Of course. I know this has been um, an area of research for you for a while. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into understanding that this was something that needed a second look or a closer look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in my previous work, I was working in a nonprofit with survivors of sexual trauma um, and domestic violence. And it was something that I actually noticed in that work that I myself had never really thought about before. But in working with um, the kids who had been survivors of sexual trauma, we would often get the parents coming in as, you know, support people, also needing therapy on their own because they are having to deal with the aftermath of how this has impacted the family and the child. Um, so then coming into my office and, you know, seeking out therapy, I was like, oh, wow, like, the parents are often overlooked in this situation. Um, and then I really noticed that how their sex life had been impacted was coming up a lot in our conversations. Um, so when I went into my doctoral program, I had originally had a whole other topic that I wanted to do. And then it kind of hit me. I was like, this is something that I'm witnessing in real time. 
And also mm-hmm. I went and looked and there was no research out there about it, which surprised me because there were so many clients coming in with this issue and it hadn't been researched. And I was like, wow, this needs to change. Um, so that's how I decided that that was going to be the topic that I was going to take on so we could have some concrete, you know, research out there about this phenomenon and how it exists and how it's impacting people. Yeah, I I know when you and I originally talked about this, it was one of those light bulb moments for me where I thought, wow, of course, we need more research on this. Because anecdotally, I've worked with survivors of sexual abuse and sexual trauma my whole career. And it's in hindsight, looking back, one of the things that we talk a lot about is how the ripple effects of that experience have affected their family. And so many survivors look back and can say things like, you know, my parents were never really the same again after I made this outcry and and disclosed what happened to me. And I don't think that this gets a lot of attention. And I don't think parents know how, how to really address this part of impact on them. Because understandably, most of the time, they're really concerned about helping their child through the experience. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. It was even pretty rare that we would have the parents seeking therapy for themselves. Um, fortunately, mm-hmm. at our agency, we made sure that we always offered it. And I think that helped with parents uh, using, uh, using that resource. But it's not really something that parents think about. They think about, what can I do to help my child? And in right. that, obviously, you have to take care of yourself, too, to help be able to take care of your child. So that's a really important component. It is. Let's let's break down a little bit about what else you've learned so much in the overall research. You know, some of the emotional and psychological effects of the um, immediately after a parent learns about what's happened to their child, and on the relationship after. What are you seeing? Um, so one of the things that I noticed was a lot of the symptoms that happen after the parent finds out pretty much mimic symptoms of PTSD. So one of the things that I looked at in my research was secondary trauma, um, Mm -hmm. which is basically the same symptoms of PTSD. They might happen on a lower scale and those are happening with somebody who has indirectly been exposed to the trauma. So that's what the parents are going through. So they're experiencing the the intrusive thoughts and the flashbacks and the confusion and the shock and guilt. And they're experiencing hypervigilance and anxiety Um, All of those things are coming up for the parent as well. And that is causing an impact then on their functioning. They're functioning within their relationship with their partner and um, also how they're going to be able to support the kid. Yeah, it's it's like they're vicariously experiencing the abuse themselves through that secondary exposure. Yeah. Yeah. And how long uh, how long have you seen some of those symptoms last for parents? It really can vary. And one thing that I noticed that is a factor in kind of how long these symptoms last is really the different experiences of the trauma that was experienced. So mm-hmm. sometimes the trauma um, happened by like, or the perpetrator was a sibling or a cousin. Sometimes it was like an older aunt, aunt or uncle. Sometimes it was um, a, a peer at school or also when the parent finds out about the trauma. So sometimes the parents are finding finding out pretty soon after it happens. Sometimes it's been like five years, 10 years. And I noticed that like those different factors impact the impact that it has on the parent. Um, Like some people, some people that I was interviewing when they found out 
years after the abuse had happened, the impact seemed like it, there was still an impact. There were still some of those symptoms of the PTSD initially, but they didn't mm-hmm. last as long um, because also I, they didn't have to go through necessarily all of the same um, urgent steps of having to support the child through this because the child is maybe now an adult or they're older and there's a lot of uh, time removed from when it happened. Sure, the immediate crisis of ensuring that it stops. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed any difference between how learning about a child's victimization can affect mothers versus fathers? Definitely. The mothers are more likely to seek support services. Um, Definitely saw moms more than I would see the dads. I feel like moms are more likely to be over expressive with their emotions and want to talk about it and want to, they're probably the ones that oftentimes are taking on more of like the support role for the child and bringing them to the services. Um, But part of that is because men and how they handle their emotions sometimes and being more avoidant and a little bit distant. So doesn't mean that they're not as equally impacted by what happened, but they handle it in a different way. Um, so yeah. the, it's more like an anger and like overprotectiveness coming in. And then also like a distance because you don't want to face the that tough um, emotions and reality of what happened to your child because that's a lot. So they might be handling it in very different ways. And that's one of the things that can contribute to the disconnect in the relationship because now you have two people who are going through this experience and handling it very differently. Yeah. So let's break that down a little bit more. How does that start to influence how the parents relate to each other if they're still in relationship with one another? Mm -hmm. It can be frustrating. And one of the things for my research, the requirement is for the couple to have been in a relationship after because I want to explore what those dynamics look like. And it definitely can be challenging because you are hoping to have your partner to be there for support while you're navigating the situation. And that's not always the reality because you're handling it in such different ways. If you have a partner who wants to avoid and you want to talk about it, that's going to be challenging because who are you going to talk to about it now? Um, Typically women or moms are, you know, going to therapy and then they're having another outlet to talk about it, at least from my experience um, working with them. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that's important, too, that happens uh, in the relationship is if the perpetrator was somebody who was a family member of one of the couples, that causes another big disconnect because now you're dealing with like the outside family dynamics of like how you're going to navigate that maybe it was this your partner's sibling who did this or your partner's aunt Mm -hmm. who did this. Um, I've worked with couples before where it was like a a step sibling situation and Mm -hmm. it was the one parent's, you know, biological kid and the other parent's biological kid. And that causes a lot of distance, especially if they're both kids, because the other parent can't necessarily just be like, you're the perpetrator. I'm going to remove myself from you. That kid mm-hmm. also, because they're a kid, they have their own thing that they have to go through. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. It can create, I imagine, a lot of sensitivity and a lot of fear around whether or not staying together continues to increase the risk of re-victimization for the children. And mm-hmm. I imagine that how each parent would um, uh, address the discovery and how they process it and what kinds of boundaries they want to put in place, it can create a lot of trust concerns between parents, right? Can mm-hmm. Are we really safe in this relationship together if we see things mm-hmm. differently? 
Yep. I feel like trust comes up as a big one. It's also one of those symptoms that happens that happens of the secondary trauma where there's like a mm-hmm. loss of trust because you have this like trust breach, even if it wasn't towards yourself, it was towards your child or towards yourself mm-hmm. if it was somebody that you were close with or somebody that you knew. So that can translate over into your relationship where now you're even being more hypervigilant with your partner. Like, can I trust you? When when the immediate crisis kind of uh, starts to recalibrate into a new normal for a family after something like this happens and is discovered, what are some of the things that partners might observe in their relationship that is a warning sign that maybe something isn't quite resolved between the two of them or there's a disconnect of some sort that uh, would benefit from being addressed? Okay, yeah. I think they start to observe more of the disconnect in the relationship. Like you notice that there is some distance between this person. You notice that there might be some feelings of resentment toward this person, especially about how they might have responded to the situation. And Mm -hmm. that stuff can come up once you've been able to like calm down from the immediate reaction of everything. Um, You might start to realize like, oh, I actually am frustrated about how all of this went down or even how things are continuing to go. Because this is not something where like after the Typically, after like the the urgentness happens and everybody's you know going into fix it mode and trying to get the support and dealing with like the legal system and all of that, um, after that stuff happens, there's typically a lot of lingering things that are still occurring because you're still dealing with those like family dynamics that have shifted through all of this. So when you're dealing with that shift, there's a lot of things that could come up that could create conflict. So then when that conflict is happening, then you're starting to realize that this had more of an impact than you realize. And and when it comes to the sexual aspect of the relationship, you're realizing that that's not happening as much anymore. You're not being as intimate with your partner anymore. And then you can kind of draw some connections there of why that is happening. Yeah. Well, why does that happen? Right. Is it is it always about conflict between the parents or might it be related to that vicarious victimization that we were talking about a little earlier? Mm hmm. It's definitely a little bit of both. So I feel like there's like a whammy going on there. There's um, There's been a lot of research out there about the impact of secondary sexual trauma. However, it's shockingly has not been when it comes to parents, but there has been research out, out there about when it comes to professionals who deal yes. with um, um, survivors of trauma and how they're impacted and somewhat how they're um sexual health is impacted. So that has been helpful as like a baseline for my research. But for some reason that has not translated over into the parents, which is shocking to me because they're, you know, the ones that are the closest to the child who's experiencing this. So if you're uh-huh. dealing with the the flashbacks and the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety and the lack of trust, then when you're being in situations that are going to mimic what you are knowing your child to have gone through or what you're thinking your child may have gone through, if you don't know all the details, that's going to be challenging for yourself to be intimate, to, to feel any desire, to want to engage like that. And then when you're also dealing with the relationship, potential relationship conflict, if you're handling the situation differently and are not really working through that well, then that's also going to cause a disconnect between the partner. So the mm-hmm. the trauma symptoms are there that are making it challenging to be intimate. And then also the conflict between the relationship, because you're not having that support from that person that could um, ideally like ease some of that. If you're having those trauma mm-hmm. symptoms and then you have this supportive partner and you're working through this together, then that's going to change the whole dynamic and you're going to you know feel more supported and you might not feel as much of a lack of trust and you might lean into your partner more because you're supporting each other through this time. So much of how families heal really depends on how well parents navigate this together and how 
how much they do lean into each other and share the fears and the vulnerabilities that they are both experiencing and provide support and validation for where they're both at in their own kind of individual processing of, of what has occurred and then how they as a family unit will kind of bring that back together. In your research, are you seeing anything come up around parents who also have been victimized as children or have had other experiences of sexual trauma and how that plays a role in the impact of their own child's uh, victimization on their relationship or sex life? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's very common that that has happened as well. However, I haven't noticed any significant changes thus far, because I'm early on in the research, um, thus far, and how that impacts the outcome of how they're responding to their childs. Interesting. Interesting. I sort of have an idea that if someone has earlier experiences of sexual trauma in their life, it might kind of rattle their worldview a little bit more Mm -hmm. if their child has been impacted in the same way, um, or they might... Uh, kind of feel like they could have done something different and and they weren't able to be successful in that to prevent it happening from their child. I don't know that to be true, but I imagine that for some folks that can kind of create a compounded experience and and complication in their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it hasn't came up in the research with clients that Mm -hmm. I've worked with that has been a factor in that it just brings up what had happened to them. So that then becomes a part of like the, the healing process that you're talking about what you're experiencing with your child. And then also what you went through, because unfortunately there's a lot of people who haven't necessarily um, necessarily like processed trauma that they went through early on in their life or healed mm-hmm. from it. So it kind of just brings it up. And then now they're in a way able to address that in addition to addressing what's going on currently. Yeah. Yeah. So, There's a specific scenario that can lead to other issues within partnerships. Um, We've talked a little bit about this. If there's a sibling or half sibling or another child in the family unit um, that is the perpetrator or, um, uh, you know, so closely related to the victim and lives with the victim. Let's talk a little bit about what parents can do in that situation and how it can affect, you know, their own relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, so what I've noticed is oftentimes like on a logistical level, obviously like the child gets removed from the home, the perpetrator. Um, but the thing that is challenging for the parents is the other parent having to still have contact with the other child. Cause for the parent whose child was the victim, it can feel like that person harmed my child. I want nothing to do with that child, even though they're also a child. Cause typically we're talking about another child when this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, So the parents really have to come together and try to set healthy boundaries and determine how they're going to navigate that in a way that is going to feel safe for the parent whose child was the victim as well. But Mm -hmm. also understanding that the parent whose child was the perpetrator can't neglect their child because that child still has to get help. Yeah. And the parent is the person who has to get that child help. What about if, if uh, all the siblings involved are, are, they have the same parents, right? And we're not talking about a, a step-sibling situation. What are some variables that those parents might consider because, you know, they're, they're both parents to the perpetrator or to the, the victimized child? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, that adds to another layer of challenge. Sometimes the same thing happens where like that kid gets, you know, removed from the home. And I would say that it's probably similar in that the parents have to determine together how they're going to navigate that. I think the biggest thing here is the parents deciding what's going to be best for them in terms of the boundaries that they establish and how they're going to support each other through it. Because every situation is going to look a little different. And the thing that's going to help with continuing to have that like trust and support in the relationship is just making sure that both parties' feelings are being considered and you're working together to decide how you're going to navigate that. Yeah. There are so many variables to consider when when parents are looking at sibling abuse in terms of how to best uh, remedy the dynamic and create safety for everyone involved. And I think a lot of those variables are things like the ages of the children, the duration of the abuse that has occurred, um, the nature of the abuse that's occurred, what kind of supports um, might be introduced into the family in terms of therapy or um, medication, or maybe some some separation and distance between the, the two children and um, who have been involved in the scenario. Um, but there's other things to look at too. And I think we, when we look at a family as a system, we often look at how does the family system support healing? And one of the things that I hear a lot, I'm wondering if you're hearing this, is that a lot of families um, tend to kind of handle it within the family and keep a, a pretty tight lid on what has happened. And that, and I think there's good intention there, but that secrecy doesn't always um, mitigate risk. And let's talk a little bit about how that secrecy doesn't help the situation. Mm-hmm. That is so true that that definitely happens. It's something that people feel a lot of guilt, you know, and shame and embarrassment around mm-hmm. happening in their family, that they are very likely to keep it within the family system and keep a hush hush in the immediate family. And that doesn't necessarily help the situation because there's so many elements of support that need to go into making sure that the family can heal from what happened. That not saying that you have to go shot from the rooftops what happened, but you want to make sure that all of those areas of need are being met. And that does involve involving other people. Um, Like you might have to talk to the child's school. You're going to have to, uh, I think reaching out to an agency that handles this is helpful because you can get wraparound services for navigating these different things. Um, But one thing that I noticed that happens like in the family system, in the external family system, like extended family, is when people do find out about these things happening, there's um, frustration. I have had um, clients tell me that once this happened, they learned that it had happened before in another mm. family or with somebody else. And then that is a whole nother level of anger because if it had been spoke about, something could have been done about it and this next person wouldn't have been a victim. So that's talking about it is important so people can know what they're, what they're dealing with in the family system. Yeah. Yeah. I've said this before and I'll say it many more times, but probably one of the only things more taboo than sexual violence is talking about it. And we, we really have to get over that hurdle because when we talk about it, that becomes protection. It becomes prevention because talking about it can mitigate shame for people in a family. 
um, and, and it can help them get access to different resources and learn how to create different boundaries in a family system and really support um, everyone. And a lot of families will say things like they don't want to ostracize a perpetrator or a victim. And it's understandable. And for a period of time, it might be necessary. It might be necessary forever. It really depends on kind of the risks that are involved. So working with an agency can help families really appropriately understand what are the ongoing risks and how do those risks change if somebody does or does not get treatment for perpetration um, and for, for the survivor. Um, so let's let's kind of come back to partners, right? Parents. How can they begin to rebuild a sexual connection or an intimate connection if they've noticed that that has been an impact um, in their lives? Definitely talking with somebody like a therapist and working through any of the trauma symptoms that might be coming up for them and processing those so that they can get to a place where they're feeling more comfortable with themselves and within the relationship. Especially if there's like, um, sometimes there's guilt present, like mm -hmm. guilt for wanting to experience pleasure with your partner because you feel like you shouldn't because you're dealing with this thing that has happened. And that has that stuff that has to be you know processed and talked about so you can get to a place where you're feeling more comfortable. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and I would add that healing is not linear for parents, just like it's not linear for survivors. So mm -hmm. I think it's really important to remember that you might feel really amenable and open to sex and, and embodied during sex during some experiences with your partner. And as you're continuing to process the trauma that your child has experienced and and the ripple effect on your family, um, it's okay and to be expected that you might have moments where you're not really interested in being sexual and and hopefully partners can approach each other with uh, a tremendous amount of patience and an understanding that you might be ready at different times to reignite sexual passion between the two of you. And that doesn't mean that there's anything bad or wrong in how you're navigating this together. In fact, it's to be expected. Yeah. Um, so, so go slow with one another and really emphasize things like safety. What do you both need to reaffirm areas of consent with each other? What do you both need in order to um, feel like you can surrender in pleasure? And can you work on slowly providing that with one another if speed is something that might make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, definitely. I agree with all of that wholeheartedly. <laughs> I think going slow is the key. Yeah. And you're, you're still conducting your research around this. So can you say a little bit about kind of what what this research is really um, what it consists of and what you're looking for. And if participants want to want to engage in this study, how can they do that? Yeah. So the thing that I'm specifically looking at in the research is the impact on both sexual intimacy and sexual desire. Um, so sexual intimacy is like the trust and closeness that you feel with somebody on a physical level. And then desire is your um, desire to engage in sexual activity with somebody. So I'm looking at how both of those are impacted right after the parent um, finds out that the sexual abuse has happened of their child. So addressing like, no, sorry, assessing the PTSD symptoms that are occurring and then assessing that impact after. 
So yeah, the criteria is just a parent of a child who's been sexually abused. It could have happened at any time period. It could be historical. Um, and then participating in an interview in which I ask questions to um, kind of dig deeper and understand this phenomenon and how the impact is happening when it comes to the parents. Okay, great. And how long would a person expect to be involved in the study if they participate? What's the time commitment? It's um, a one-time interview. The interview lasts about 30 to 45 minutes, just depending on the information that comes up. Um, if somebody would be interested in wanting to participate in the study, I would love to, you know, find some more participants to um, get some more concrete, you know, evidence for how this is impacting people. And I have a survey that someone can fill out. And then after filling out that survey, an interview would get scheduled. And then after that interview, that's it. So where can people sign up if they want to participate? I have a link that has a little QR code or a link directly to a website that is um, has um, the survey. And then once the survey is filled out, I will reach out to the person and get an interview scheduled. Okay, so we will put that link in the show notes if anyone would like to participate in this study. Um, that would be great. And I'm sure there's more information about the IRB approval and any incentives that are included when, when people go check out that link. Also, um, can they email you at imani at modernintimacy.com to get that link? Yes, definitely. You can email me. I will be happy to share the link. Amazing. Well, thank you, Imani, for sharing your wisdom around this really difficult and, and, um, and trying experience in people's lives. And I'm really excited to look at the research when your study is, is completed so that we can really start helping parents and, and in helping parents, helping survivors as well. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. All right, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Get Naked with Dr. Kate. As always, these topics can be triggering and can be difficult. And if you feel like you would like some support in navigating that, feel free to reach out to us at modernintimacy.com slash contact. We're happy to schedule a free consultation with you and align you with a therapist on our team or help you find someone close to you if nobody's a good fit within our, our Modern Intimacy team. Uh, we want to make sure you get the support that you need. All right, I'll see everyone next week. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrary. Everyone has questions and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at getnakedpodcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only.